the more questions you ask, the more information you get, the better information you get, the better decisions you get to make. And that's really in a nutshell for me, what it's all about is it relates to what I went through with mom and dad is what people go through in the personal finance realm as they're trying to plan for their family and their future. Don't stop asking questions. This is the Personal Finance Show. Hi, I'm Bo Humphreys, and this is the Personal Finance Show. Robert Geniak wants you to know that you are capable of creating the financial future you desire. But you can't create a financial future if you don't know anything about your financial present. 17 years ago, Robert lost his job in IT and realized he was actually doing okay financially. Sure, the money he had accumulated wouldn't last forever, but as long as he generated some income to fill in the gaps along the way, he would be fine. Robert only knew this because he had a financial plan in place. If you're laid off and don't have a financial plan, the only thing you can do is wonder if you're going to be okay. You might get stressed out looking for a new job and panic if you don't find one right away. With a long-term financial plan, you don't have to wonder. You'll know if you're okay or not. But this personal finance stuff is really dull, so Robert decided to write a book called Rich is the State of Mind to try to convince Canadians that taking control of your money is easier than they might think. A highly sought-after speaker, Robert delivers dynamic keynote speeches and interactive workshop programs to international organizations, financial industry conferences, and private clients. He also has a podcast called Money, Motivation, and More, and a TV show called We Talk Money. Robert joined me in the studio to tell his personal finance story. I think one of the earliest memories of money that I've got, Bo, was when I was about 13 to 14 years old, and I had my first job. I got a job working at a lumberyard in town, and I got my first paycheck. What, uh, what town is this? This was in LaSalle, Ontario, just outside of Windsor. Nice. That's where my wife is from, Ball River Canard. There you go. So, I, I know it well. I grew up yeah. down the street. She probably went to the same high school I did if she went to Sandwich Secondary. No, she didn't go to Sandwich. She went to Villanova. Oh, okay. Yeah, just a little further down A little further down the street. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> awesome. And one of the things that I realized, it was kind of the first time I had my own money, you know, that wasn't an allowance. Mm-hmm. It didn't come from mom and dad. And... I wasn't really sure what to do with it. You know, I went to the bank, I cashed the check and, you know, you had to do it with bankers hours then, you know, you had to go by three in the afternoon. There were no ATMs. And so I went in on a Friday when they were open late till five, cashed the check and I had like 70 bucks and, and it was like, you had no clue. I am like, what do I do with this? I got lots of things I want to buy, sure, but I'm sure that probably isn't the best thing to do with it. And so I kind of took it home, showed mom and dad. It's like, look, first paycheck. Mm -hmm. And they went, great. So how much of it are you putting away? Okay. So they did start that conversation with you. And I'm like, put it away for what? (laughs) Like till next week or till no. And they started to explain to me the concept that when you get money, some of it goes away for 
a longer term. Some of it goes away for a shorter term. And then some of it you get to spend because, of course, you know, I was 14 years old. I didn't have any obligations, right? No. You know, not the way we do as adults, right? You've got mortgage and car payments and hydro and, you know, all those things that need to get paid that come right off the top. And you're so far away from thinking about it. Did it make an impact on you when they said that at the time, do you think? It probably didn't right away. Mm. It's this more of a retrospective thing. Sure, sure. But I then they'd set up a savings account. And made regular contributions to it when I was a kid. And of course, then as I got to be an older teen, when you're younger, you know, your parents' influence is different. Mm -hmm. And then you get to be 17, 18, 19. And that's like, yeah, that's not working for me. I'm spending every dime I got. I got my own ideas. I've got my own ideas about (laughs) money now. But I'd never really forgotten about the fact that there was this bank account here Mm -hmm. that had some money in it. And okay, I'm not going to touch it. At some point, I'll do something with it. And then eventually you learn to, I, I guess, in some ways, ignore your parents' advice. You create your own ideas. And then you get into your late 20s and early 30s and go like, holy crap. Mom and dad were actually right. I should have listened more. I, I, I wish <laughs> I had listened happens. more. And sometimes you, you see this in the work that I do where I'm talking to people about personal finances and money. And they go, I wish I knew that when I was 25. Yeah. And the reality is... We all knew it when we were 25. We just didn't do anything with it when we were 25. We know all this stuff. Because we just got overwhelmed by everything that was going on around us. And because of that, we didn't apply the things that we knew at the time. If we had, it would have been great. But the reality is we didn't. So when do you get back into that rhythm? But one of the things for me, outside of that initial first paycheck experience was I was 20 years old. I was living up in Ottawa, Ontario. I graduated from St. Clair College in Windsor. Uh, I'm on my own for the first time, living okay. far away from mom and dad. You know, They're in LaSalle. I'm in Ottawa. Was making pretty good money working for the federal government at StatsCan. And the Canadian softball fastball championships were in Ottawa. Teams from all over Canada. I pitched fastball when I was a kid. Loved the game. And went to the park to see the game and came to the realization that I didn't have the $7.50 to get me into the park. Really? Like in your bank account? or I, I, didn't, have it, I didn't have it on me. Yeah. And to be honest, I probably didn't have it in the bank either. Hmm. Because, you know, I was 20 years old. I was making pretty good money at the time. This is 1981. Yeah. And, you know, probably making about eighteen to 19000 a year. Okay. When I was 20, because IT had just started to blossom into sure. you know, uh, the technology industry. Early days, yeah. Didn't have any student debt, didn't own a car, hmm. and still had no disposable income because probably for a variety of reasons, I you know, was paying rent and you know, taking the bus and bus passes and probably living a little bit beyond my means at 20 going like, hey, I've figured this all out. Yeah. And couldn't go see the thing I really wanted to see. Interesting. And it was kind of like a little flip went click. It was like, you got to figure this out. And maybe I'm not managing things as well as I, exactly. I could be. And, and some of that, I, I don't know if there was this thing going on, the little movie projector in the back of your head of mom and dad going, when you get paid, you put some of this money away. Mm-hmm. And I would like to say that that was the trigger point, Bo, 
But I'm not even sure that was it. But because that was just an early memory of, of because it was only about time? two years later. Okay. For about six months, and I share this with audiences all the time. I said I did a really stupid thing for about six months, where I paid off my visa with my Mastercard, mm. because I still hadn't figured it out, and mm. I was kind of like magically going like, I wonder if the bank's ever going to figure this out. <laughs> You know, and we're not talking massive amounts, you know, a couple hundred bucks. I really yeah. wasn't spending all that much money, but didn't have the money to pay off the bills. So wait, wait, I'll take cash advance and pay off this bill with that bill. Now, I'm assuming at the time cash advance interest was instantaneous as it is today. Pretty much instantaneous yes. as it was today. It wasn't quite as onerous as it is today, yes, but it was okay. still enough that by the end, end of the six months, I had said this to a buddy of mine. It's like, you know, this is really cool. And he went, you're an idiot. <laughs> And I'm like, I didn't want to say it. But... I'm like, what are you talking about? He said, no, you're an idiot. And he sat me down and said, okay, this is how this works. Interesting. And you're, you're building a, what you think is a good system for managing your money. <laughs> you, you are building a downward spiral that is going to explode. That's right. If you don't get this figured out. And... I got it figured out. So before then, you would look, You weren't even thinking about credit card interest at all? I really wasn't. I was thinking mm. about the fact that I solved this immediate problem yeah. by using this card. And then the next month when that bill came in, it's like, wow, well, I didn't put anything on this card, so I'll just bounce it back over to here. Never thinking that in that long-term picture. And you have to keep in mind that back when I went to high school and went to college, which was the, the late seventies, early eight, nobody mm -hmm. talked about personal finance in school. Sure. They didn't talk about compound interest in both the positive or the negative sense in terms of credit and debt versus saving and investing. You know, they didn't teach you how to manage your money. They, you know, graduated from college. They hand you your diploma. I had a job already lined up before I graduated Moved to Ottawa and away you went. Did they come to St. Clair to recruit you? They did. Yeah. And, you know, which rarely wow. happens now. Yeah. Now students are kind of on their own. They showed up at the school and said, these are the jobs we've got open. And I have to admit, Bo, I lucked out because the gentleman who came to interview us at St. Clair had graduated from St. Clair five years earlier. Okay. And was now in a position with StatsCan that he came back to do some recruiting and he put us all in a room, and our graduating class in 1981 was only 27 students. So we were on the cusp of what became IT. When I did it, it was called data processing. It gives you an idea of so how that old was I your am. your program. That was the program. It was called data processing. Mm. Sounds and perfect for government. It perfect <laughs> because they have lots of data and they need to do something with it. Particularly stats can. Yeah. And of course, in 1981. It was census year. Mm, okay. And he said, we've got all kinds of positions open. We need people who can write code to process the census data. He said, I'm not going to give you a hard sell. He said, here's the deal. He said, I can hire one of you. I can hire 10 of you. I can hire all of you. Come back here tomorrow and tell me who wants to move to Ottawa in May. Wow. And 20 of us did. Okay. All 20 of and you. so 20 of us moved to Ottawa mm. and it was kind of like having a little frat party yeah. in Ottawa because we all lived within walking distance of each other. None of us had cars and we all commuted to StatsCan every day at a place called Tunney's Pasture, which is where the StatsCan buildings were. 
And for the first couple of years, it was an extension of college that we were getting paid yeah, for. Yeah, it just sounds like that. You didn't really get your independence No, yet. no. It, mm. And it was kind of cool. And then eventually, you know, people partnered up and moved off and moved to other parts of the yeah. government and moved to different parts of Ottawa. But it, it was really a cool experience. So you go through this credit card cycle or loop, yeah. loop let's call it an infinite loop. <laughs> the infinite downward spiral. <laughs> infinite downward spiral. And then what did you do? Did, was that a bit of a wake up? Then? It was. It, it, it absolutely was. And then I started to, uh, I'll say, get my crap together uh, yeah. for the audience. <laughs> Please and, say, say whatever you like. And, and so what happened after that was I had done the computer thing for about four years at this point okay. and went, eh, this kind of sucks. The data processing. Yeah. Part. I, you know, I liked it. I was writing code in, in languages. Nobody, no IT person today has ever heard of mm. things like Pascal and PL1 and Fortran and Assembler. Yeah, nice. Um, and I was you know, really good at it, I think. And I went, but I want to get in the management side. Okay. So I decided to go back to school. Okay. I wasn't interested in university after high school because I thought it was too theoretical. I wanted to learn how to do stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, college taught me how to do stuff. Yep. And then after four years of doing stuff, I realized a little more theory probably wouldn't hurt. Interesting perspective, because I always wonder if a four-year bachelor degree at university being very theoretical is a waste of time when you should be finding something practical first. So you, you I think did it this. depends on the program, really, sure, Bo, okay. because now so many universities have co-op programs yeah. where you can kind of mix and match, and you're, you're learning, then you're working, then you're learning, then you're working, which I think is awesome. Mm-hmm. But that really wasn't a big thing back in the early 80s. So I decided to go back to school, applied to Wolford Laurie and went because they had a good business program. Hmm. And so left Ottawa, went to Waterloo, did a full year there, and then had an interesting meeting with the dean of the business program who said, Robert, we really like having you here, but we can't let you continue in the program okay. because you can't pass calculus. Oh, no. And it's hard. I, I remember first, in, first year calculus, yeah. Well, and for me, what happened was, Back in the day, and some of your younger listeners probably won't realize, there used to be a thing called grade 13. Oh, OAC for me. OAC, it, right? Grade 13 turned into OAC, which turned into whatever Which turned it into is nothing because yeah. I got rid of it mm-hmm. and, and de-streamed everybody. But because I didn't go to what was then called grade 13, I never took grade 13 math, yeah. which included calculus, functions and relations, for algebra. For me, it was a separate class. Calculus was separate exactly. from algebra. So they realized at that point that that was needed to pass these first year university exactly so i never took that and then i went to college where they really didn't care about the math because it was all about the programming i went and worked for four years and now i'm back sitting in a university level class never having taken the highest end high school math so i was lost so that's it so that was the main reason why you couldn't you know and as i said to the dean i i said I've got an A in every class yeah. I took, including algebra, sure. because to me, algebra was like programming. Okay, it yeah. was formulas. Sure. I, I get that. But calculus, it's a different oh, beast all its own. I don't remember any of it. And I, I, didn't, I just couldn't wrap my head around it. And they said, no calculus, you don't get to go on. Well, that sucks because, uh, you know, I mean, you've lived the rest of your life since then now. Have you used calculus a lot? I, I have not. <laughs> I do. And, and I'll admit, I understand the concept that teaching people to think is a good thing, even if what you're teaching them is very abstract. And it's kind of like mm. people who can do Sudoku puzzles. I know people who are very proficient at math 
who struggle with Sudoku because they can't do pattern matching of numbers in squares, right? I could never do calculus. I'm pretty good at Sudoku because I can recognize patterns in kind of my, the way my thought processes work. It's like over, down, divide, look at this. You know, what, what's the pattern that's missing here? Yeah. Um, so at that point when they said I couldn't stay in the business program, I said, I do want to stay here. I like the school. So what about an MBA? Hmm. Because I did four years of work, oh, two years, okay. three years of college, and a year here where I did pretty well in with the exception of one class. First question they asked me was, what's your undergrad in? Hmm. I'm like, uh, don't have an undergrad, but I got all this other stuff. This is going to be my undergrad. And they, they said, no undergrad, no MBA. Oh. Now, of course, we're 1984. Time these frame, rules. Right? I hate all these it's rules. Rule, yeah, very rules driven. <laughs> and I, I said, wait, 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 wait. I said, let me get this right. Somebody who graduates from here with a BA in, I don't know, psychology, yeah. on a good day, they might not be able to spell business administration, <laughs> gets in because they've got an undergrad, no work experience. Oh, boy. They get in, and I can't get in. And they went, yeah, that's kind of how it works. Uh. So I went down, changed my major from honors business admin to BA psych. And that's what you did. That's what I did. And about a semester into it, I said to myself, I can't do this full time. Okay. I, I've, I've got to go back to work. Yeah. So I went back to work. And what did I go back to do? The thing I knew how to do. Yeah. I went back to writing code. What was making you want to go back? Like just uh, you were restless? I or? just, I just spending the money to do it full time. Mm. You know, I loved the courses and liked the program, but there was this nagging thing that's like, you got to go make some money. Well, how yeah. were you paying for it? Was it, did you have to borrow the money? I, I, at the time I had borrowed some money and at the time I had figured out in the previous four years how to save some. You did. Okay. So I was kind of self-funding it and university in 84 was not the cost of sure. university today. Okay. But I decided I wanted to go back to work. And so I went back to work, found an employer who said, you've got the exact skill set we're looking for. And then I got hung up between the information technology team and the HR department. Okay. Which if you've ever had one of those arguments, it can be really kind of esoteric. HR said, we're glad that they love you, but we only hire people with degrees. Oh, this is really frustrating. And I went, but I'm working on my degree. Yeah. And they went, oh. And I said, I'm currently enrolled, Wolfer Laurier. Yeah. And I said, I will continue to do so. That's my plan. Oh, well, if you're working on your degree, we'll pay for it. What? And I'm like, I used to say exactly what? <laughs> and they said, yes. Okay. And so I, I went and had another meeting with the IT team. And I said, is this true? And they said, yes. I said, great. So, so everyone's good. Everybody's happy. I start working. I'm taking night classes, two classes every semester from 85 to 88. So okay. I could actually graduate. Wow. I submit my first expense claim. Yeah, yeah. And the next thing I know, I get a call from HR. <laughs> We'd like to talk to you. So I go down. What's up? We'd like to talk to you about these classes you're taking, you're, you're taking developmental psychology, you're taking sociology of suicide, oh, no. you're taking team group dynamics behavior. And they said, so are you like front loading your IT degree with electives? Oh no. And I went, Oh, I'm, I'm not doing an IT degree. I'm doing a degree in psychology. Oh boy. And they went, what? I said, yeah. Yeah. Is well, we just assumed I said, 
You never asked. Yeah, there, there was no conversation about that. I said, so we've got a problem. Ooh. And they said, no, we don't have a problem. You've got a problem. Yeah, you're already working there. And so there. I, I'm, I went up and I talked to my boss and I said, here's the deal, Jerry. I said, and so he said, let's go. Off we go to HR. Okay. And my boss looked at him and bless his soul, he, he looked at me and he said, you weren't smart enough to ask him <laughs> what he was taking? He oh, said, I no. knew. He said it was part of our he knew. conversation. Yeah, he, he knew. He would have mentioned it. And he didn't care because he didn't, as, as many people believe sometimes, that, yeah, you've got a degree, but I want you to write code and do really cool stuff with our computer systems. Whether or not you've got a degree is kind of irrelevant to me. Yeah. If HR is making it mandatory and you're pursuing a degree and they were not smart enough to ask you if it was psychology or IT. Yeah, it's really just a formality. At and this so point. what he said, he, he said, you never asked. He said, I've got signed paperwork where you agreed to fund his degree at Wilfrid Laurier. That's right. As long as he, you know, continued to pursue it, didn't take semesters off, submitted his stuff. All the conditions. He, he said, he's met every condition of the employment agreement. Hmm. He, he said, I've got some bad news for you, HR. You're on the hook for a psych <laughs> degree. Okay. And I, I did the next three years doing this and graduated in 88 with a psych degree, BA psych, which at the time... I thought it would enable me to go back and do the MBA. It finally met the undergrad yeah. thing. It never, ever happened, Bo. I never went back, never did the MBA. Because you didn't want to? I was at a different point. I had fallen back in love with the IT thing. Okay. And the thought at, at this point, you know, was in a relationship. And it's like, no. I, I busted my butt for three years, two courses every semester, spring, summer, fall, and winter. It's like, No. I'm not going back to school right now. Yeah. And, and as in the long run, as it proved out, never, ever did go back. Would you recommend someone works and going to school at night? Would you ever, if somebody was considering I, this? I would. It takes an incredible amount of discipline. Mm. And you have to, if you're doing it, I, I guess, as a single, sure. then the dis, everything falls on you. Yeah. If you're doing it when you're partnered with somebody, it takes a great deal of uh, support from the partner yeah. because you know, you know, it sounds simple to say, well, I'm, I'm working 45, 50 hours a week and I'm going to class and I'm doing my studying and I'm writing exams. Yeah. It's a lot of work. No and, time. You have no time for anything else. And for those, and I know those who've done it not only while being partnered, but with children, it's, it's an even bigger obligation and, and more power to them. I, I'm always in, in awe of people who do that kind of thing. I don't regret it. You know, would I do it again? Would I consider going back and doing my MBA today? No, not because I don't think it'd be worthwhile, but it's it's really just not in the cards for me at this point. Mm -hmm. And so school's being paid for. You're getting decent money at this job. I was, I was making pretty decent money at the time. So I was saving... Um, owned owned a first house. Okay, so you were able to... So, well, and I say owned. Okay, the bank owned it. Uh, but I was li living there with my partner. You know, we came up with a down payment, and it was somebody that I'd met at Laurier. So things were good. Okay. Uh, so property in Waterloo. You know, uh, Aurora, Ontario, oh, Aurora, of all places, okay. yeah. uh, because the job was in Brampton. Oh, I see. And, and I think we did what many people at the time would do when they're trying to figure out 
even today, where, where do you want to live? Yeah. It's like, okay, here's a pin on the map where I work. Here's a pin on the map where you work. People do this. Yeah. What is the maximum amount of commute time <laughs> we're willing to do? And so you draw that circle around your pin and you draw that circle around their pin and like a Venn diagram, you go, we got to live somewhere in this little overlap. Yeah. And, and if there's no town there, you make one. And, and the overlap was Aurora, <laughs> Ontario. So that's how we ended up in Aurora. It was good. Both working, both busy. Sports uh, for me, you know, playing hockey, playing baseball. So did um, years just go by? Now you're now you're just full time at the job. Now full time no, at the job. No work, no school anymore. No school anymore, and a chance meeting at a wedding okay. with a financial advisor. Hmm. I'll, I'll admit, changed the you know. I don't want to say changed the course of destiny, um, but it changed <laughs> what my view on things and what I w- what eventually happened in terms of my own personal career. So up to this point, what, what are you doing with your money? Just in the, in the bank savings Paying, account, savings account, uh, had Investing, an RS, had an RSP, RSP okay. because, because, you know, back in the day, every, every bank known to mankind in January and February, it's RSP season. And a GIC? Uh, some of it was GIC. Some of it was in the early days of "quote unquote" mutual okay, funds. So early mutual funds. So little, little bit of investing, sure. but mentally, and this was kind of reinforced by my parents and her parents. It's work on paying the mortgage. Okay. Yeah. And so we did that. And and trust me, we were no you know six figure income jobs. We both had good jobs, and we were working and mm. paying the mortgage and trying to have some fun at the same time. You know, you had two cars. Because you both had to commute to work. You didn't have a choice um, there. You know, yeah. Two cars requires you know two purchases of gasoline a week and double the insurance. And in Aurora, it's not like you probably didn't have good public transit. Really no public transit yeah. at the time. They had a go train into downtown Toronto sure, a couple times a day. There. But I wasn't yeah. going downtown. I was going from Aurora to Brampton. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she was going from Aurora to North York. Okay. So Cars, public yeah. transit really wasn't a, an issue. Take probably triple the time if you did. If and you did so what happened was we went to a friend's wedding mm-hmm. and I had the opportunity to sit at what I refer to as the single loser table. <laughs> um, and, and the reason I say that, Bo, is, and you've done this, I'm sure, mm. when you're significant other is in the wedding party yes there's no place to put you (laughs) so so they take all the singletons of the wedding party (laughs) and they put them at the same table right but you're like you're the privileged partner of a special guest well yes but (laughs) but you have no i had no other fill the rest of the table with uh, all the other singles right with all and and so i affectionately refer to it as the single loser (laughs) table you know they were incredibly we had a great time yeah and the guy was sitting next beside, it's like, so what do you do? He's a financial advisor. I'm like, cool. So what do you do? Yeah. What does that mean? And, and so he gave me his card and said, you know, if you ever want to have a conversation, yeah. he said, give me a shout. I said, okay. So I, I did what anybody would do. And I slipped it into the, the breast pocket of my suit jacket sure. and off we went. We had a good time. So the next time I wore the suit, which was for a wedding mm. about a year later. A year later. Because I wasn't a suit guy okay, yeah. at work. I, IT never had to do the Not suit sure, thing, right? A whole year went by. You yeah, know, we, we were kind of like, you know, dockers in a shirt thing. Yeah. So I, I finally put on the suit after a year. I was like, wow, I remember this guy. Yeah. He was kind of funny. He had an interesting conversation, you know, and, and I showed it uh, to my partner and said, we should give him a call. Okay. So we did that. Just because? Was there any motivation? Like It was like... We're thinking about uh, our finances maybe, more. You know, 
let, let's go see what we, if we can sure. learn something. Well, what can we do? You know, yeah. are, are we doing everything we can do? Should we be doing something better? Are we mm. way off course? Um, you know, my parents grounding in money. My dad was not a worker in Windsor. Uh, mom stayed at home until I went to school and then worked at a variety of jobs, including doing the auto worker thing for a couple of years. But it was never for them about a long-term investing, planning for the future, uh, investments and amassing money. They just knew to put it away. They, like they, they, told they knew to put it away and to save some and pay down the mortgage and make sure you don't, don't borrow money unless you absolutely have to. And if you do pay it off as fast as you can, yeah. um, you know, so they save money. They, they bought cars, but they paid cash for their cars. Yeah. All good advice. Um, all, all good yeah. advice. Uh, my partner's parents upbringing, at the time was a little more investment based and planning for the future. Okay. And so it's like, let's go see if we can learn something. So we went to Waterloo, which was where he was from and etched on the glass door, his, his company and never said on his card, but he was president of the company. Oh, okay. <laughs> and so we're, we're sitting in the office and I'm That's looking funny. around going like uh, a little bit intimidated here. <laughs> um, and we had a great conversation and he asked us lots of questions, spent no time talking about himself. It was all about, you know, what would you like to accomplish? Where have you been? What have you seen? What have yeah. you done? What would you like to do? I said to him at the end, I said, I, I said, I got to tell you, I, I, I don't think we're right for this. And he's, oh. he's why? And I, it's, you know, it's, it's obvious you're really, really, to me, it was obvious just based on where we were you must be doing pretty good at what you're doing yeah. or else you, you wouldn't be running a company with, you know, 14 advisors and office space and all of this. And I, I said, you know, we really don't have a whole lot of money. Mm. And so quite frankly, I was a bit intimidated. Okay. And, and he said, well, he said, I'm happy to have you talk to one of our other team members, yeah. but don't be intimidated. He said, here's what I've learned along the way in my career doing what I do. If you're willing to get engaged, create a plan, and follow the plan, mm. he said, I'll help you every step of the way. Okay. He said, I'm not worried about what you have today. He said, I'm worried about what you want to have 20 years from now. Yeah. And it was like, wow. So on the drive home, it was like, okay, we should be doing this. Okay. You know, we did, went out, talked to some other folks, you know, do the, the thing, right? You've got to kind of interview a number of advisors. Okay, is, so is there a fit? Ones. Is there a feel? Okay. And we kept coming back to his comment about, I, I really don't care what you have today. Mm -hmm. Did other advisors care what you had? Some did. Yeah. And it was like, you know, you could be doing much better things with your money and you should be reallocating this and doing this. And, but they never asked us the questions mm. about, where is it you would like to be yeah. 10 or 15 years from now? They were because just focused on having you They were the kind right of focused place. on, well, we can get a client and we can move the, the, the money out of the bank and we can do this. And, and if we get them to, to pay down the mortgage sooner, then they'll be freeing up cash flow and we can yeah. do all this other stuff. Sure. And, and we can sell them insurance and we can, you know, yeah. all of... Whereas his whole approach was, you've done more things than you think you've done. Mm-hmm. So even though, despite the fact you think you're not successful, it wasn't, we didn't think we were successful. We just didn't think mentally we belonged in that office. Gotcha. <laughs> and he, he said, you've accomplished way more than many have yeah. where you are. And he said, but that said, he said, it's where do you want to go from here? Hmm. Hmm. 
And he said, I'll help you get there and we will build a plan. And he said, if you're, if you want to commit to the plan, he said, I'll commit to you. He, okay. he said, you know, he said, if you're feeling kind of overwhelmed, he said, yeah, he said, I've got young, you know, junior advisors and other members of the team, and maybe they would resonate with you better. Hmm. He, he said, but he said, I kind of, you know, he said, I like both of you and we liked him, you know, so much so that, uh, you know, we got invited to his wedding, nice. you know, is, is it unfolded in the friendship and the things that evolved sure. in the book, um, is, is it unfolded? We're great. And, you know, and then we got to a certain point with him. Life intervened on a number of things. Uh, so, so we did this and, you know, a bunch of job changes. Uh, did a stint living overseas. Okay. Uh, went to Switzerland for six years. Switzerland for six years. Living in, in a cool little town on the side of a mountain called Blonay. Is this IT um, job for you? Absolutely not. I, I was uh, kind of the stay-at-home husband guy. Oh, okay. Um, so it was a job transfer uh, for my ex. Uh, worked for Nestle, and their wow. global offices are you know, right on Lake Geneva. It Very was cool. pretty cool. What did you do? And I had spent, by that time, I had written the book. Oh, okay. So let's step back then from you meeting a financial advisor now you're learning on your own? Learning on my own, but also getting regular finance. regular updates from yeah. him, correspondence. Uh, I met with him a lot because I was intrigued about the process of, you know, how do people make decisions with money and how do they yeah. uh, create a plan and how do they stay focused on a plan and what happens when life intervenes? Because, you know, I tell audiences all the time, it's great to have a plan. But at the end of the day, life doesn't care about your plan. That's right. It has its own plan, yeah. and, and it may not mesh with your plan. So what happens when life intervenes? And that's kind of what happened when, in 2003, the opportunity came up to move overseas. Mm -hmm. And at that point, the, the book had just came out. I thought that I could spend two or three visits a year back to Canada, kind of do my thing, keep my fingers in the, in mm -hmm. the, the market, uh, as it turned out, uh, lived in Switzerland for six years yeah. and came back 74 times in six years. Whoa. Because what I found out was that my clients, if you're not here kind of present with them, yeah. they don't think you exist. Oh, interesting. And and it was great. It was, it was a great experience. Got to travel a little bit of Europe. Uh, got to spend too much time on airplanes. You know, when, when flight attendants are going, Robert, nice to see you again. It's like, <laughs> you're spending too much time on airplanes. So when did you leave IT? I left IT probably in the 99, 2000 timeframe, right around the first dot-com bubble. Okay. And so I had migrated away from writing code to managing a team to working for a software company that our company was using their software, but I knew more about the company's software than the people who worked at it. Okay. And they find they came along one day and said, why don't you just come work for us? They said, when our tech support team is calling you our client to find out why doesn't this work, <laughs> you should probably work for us. Sure. And, and I did. And one really great thing happened out of that, Bo, was they sent me to conferences and said, we want you to talk about our software. Okay, so that's when you started. And that's when I started the whole mm. idea of presenting. Yeah. 
And I kind of said, no, I, I can't do this. I can't get up in, in front of so that's where you audience, were at that time. audiences you, of tech geeks. Not comfortable. And they said, you can do this. You're really good at this. You've got natural talking style. You know the software inside and mm-hmm. out. And so I started doing it. And the more I started doing it, the cooler it got. Because I realized that instead of, like many presenters at the time and many presenters today, if you've ever gone to a, to a financial industry conference, mm-hmm. it's slide after slide after slide of data, <laughs> numbers. And it's like, and, and you can always tell when the presenter this slide's really hard to read for those of you at the back. It's like, then change your slide. There was a couple of those at the Payments Canada conference. There you go. I took a picture of a slide where I didn't understand anything that was up there because it was all... ISO two zero zero two two this and that and exactly and it was a flow chart of but you were trying to present the software in an accessible type way is that in right? an accessible way with a story of here's what you can do with it yes yes here, not here are the really cool tech things buried in the background of course yeah we enable you to do SQL database search algorithm structure in such a way nobody yeah, cares you could do that. But if you could show them, you could create a system that could do this mm-hmm. and, and paint these pictures for people. That was the best way of getting that across. And fortunately for me, that's kind of evolved into how I present today. Mm-hmm. So I'll go to present at a conference today and the conference organizers, can you send us your slides? Sure. I send them the slides. And I always know because the phone rings about 20 minutes later. <laughs> There's no words in your presentation. Yeah. I know. It's all images. Well, what are you going to talk about? That's why you're hiring me. Yeah, exactly. I, I said, I'm, I'm, going to to make, talk. I'm going to make the assumption that my audience can read. I said, so there's no sense me putting lots of words on the slide because what I want to do is create a picture and a memory for them that they take away going, that's what Robert was talking about. Yeah. Not not a, a random quote or, you know, here's the seven bullet points to financial success. Yeah. Like a speaker is for speaking. And you're right. If there's a lot of people are either reading or writing or listening, right. it's really hard to do all of them, those things at the same time. At the time. same time. Yeah. And, and now I get it because I, you know, part of the background and, and this is kind of the tenuous tie back to the degree in psych you know understand it everybody learns differently mm. some like pictures some like listening to you mm. and others want data on a slide okay and so i've kind of evolved that and i'll give data out as a handout sure. to reinforce the picture that's up there so that they listen to the story that i'm talking so they'll about have it in their hands to read and depending and that, on where you are but they don't need to see it yes up there in the seven bullet points and, and I may have a slide in the handout that ties to the picture. I'm only showing the picture. The bullet points are in your handout, but you're going to listen to me talk. And I'm not going to talk about all seven. I may only talk about two. But what I learned a long time ago about conference attendees, if they see seven bullet points on the slide and you only talk about two and go to the next slide, they're like, um, um, yeah, you didn't <laughs> talk about those last two. Oh, boy. And so that's why I, today I, I've really created my material to be almost entirely image driven. Yeah, yeah. So how do you get from presenting about software to, well, first of all, to writing a book? How do you get into the personal finance business? So in the... So back in, in 99, 2000, when everything blew up with the dot-com, I was working for a couple of companies based in California that we had software that was so cool, we couldn't figure out how to sell it. Okay. You know, 
we would show people, we would demo the software and people would go like, this is so cool. Now, what can I do with this? Yeah. What is, what and it's it like, do? you didn't get it. <laughs> and of course, you know, they, they blew up. And when, when they blew up, you know, my little job with them blew up. Okay. Uh, my, my best story about that was that I actually got let go by email. Oh, wow. From, from the second company that blew up from Cupertino, California, which now you got to remember, this is 2001, 2000, 2001 timeframe. We didn't have the technology we had today. We were carried around email in our pocket, no. right? Okay. I was working at a client site. I didn't check my corporate email for two days. I was busy installing, updating. I had, I worked for two days after I'd been let go. Oh no. Because I didn't know I had been let go. And what about a phone call? No. Phone call would have been nice. (laughs) You know. You would have had a cell phone maybe. I I would have had a cell phone. Without email on it. But here's what happened. The first email went out, said, okay, the company's imploded. Here's what's happening. We're having a conference call Friday at three o'clock to discuss what's happening. Here's the access code for the conference call. So the email about, yeah, we're all out of work, came on the Monday the email about the conference call came on the Wednesday. Okay. Well, by that time, I'm back home. Yep. And I get in the corporate email, and it's like, conference call to discuss our severance packages. So I pick up the phone and call my boss. <laughs> yeah. And went, what's going on? And they went, you, you didn't get the email? Oh, it's like, the you, email. do you remember I was on the, I was at, client site. Like, don't you know where I was? Well, and I had kind of an interesting role because I was a technical salesperson. So part of me reported to the tech team and software development. Part of me reported to sales. Okay. And when all of this happened, the head of sales talked to the head of IT development and said, you talked to Bob. And they said, you talked to Bob. Oh, great. Nobody talked to Bob. Nobody <laughs> talked to Bob. So we have the conference call and it's all good. Decided to take four months off had a little severance package. It wasn't, wasn't great. I hadn't been there that long, but it's like, okay, I got to clear my head of all this IT techie stuff. And so took four months off, met with financial advisor. And first question he asked was, so how do you feel? Yeah. I this was awesome. Okay. I said, why don't more people do this? <laughs> and he, he Take said, the four months, he said, exactly. He said, because they don't believe they can. Yeah. I said, don't believe they can. I said, why don't they believe they can? He he said, because nobody's ever told them they could. And financially, how are you doing it? Like you were able to save and build some investments? He he said to me, he said, you've just taken four months off. You didn't worry about making your mortgage payment. You didn't worry about paying the car insurance. You did a little bit of traveling, nothing super extravagant. He said, but did you worry about it the whole time you were gone? I said, no. I said, to be honest, not once. Hmm. He said, that's why we built the plan. Nice. And I said, so when people tell me, because I had heard this a bit during the form, oh, you're so lucky. You're so lucky. And I mentioned it to him and he said, oh, he said, I understand that. He said, when people are telling you you're so lucky, it's because you're doing things they want to do, Mm -hmm. but aren't doing. And so Taking that into consideration, Bo, for the next six months, every time I heard that, you're so lucky, my question was always, what's your plan with your advisor to get lucky? Yeah. And invariably, I heard, oh, I don't use an advisor. Yeah. So how's that working for you? How's it working for you? 
And further conversations, what the advisor said to me, he said, you should write a book about this experience. I said, nobody wants to read a book about me. Mm. I said, because I'm nobody special and I don't know that much. He said, you know more than you think you do. And he said, you're a decent communicator. He said, create a, create a short story for me that kind of encompasses what you learned last year. Okay. Okay, I can try that. You know, I was a good technical writer. I was writing articles for, for ISO magazine and SQL database magazine on, you know, uh, algorithm search strategy theory. <laughs> you know, yeah, nobody wanted to read that. <laughs> but this was my first kind of foray at, uh, I'll call it creative writing. Yeah. It took me about six months to get a short story together. And I sent it to him. Hadn't heard from him for about a week. And then I started getting emails from people I'd never heard, never even knew, never even met before going, when's the book going to be ready? Hmm. And so I responded, there's no book. And B, who are you? Yeah. Well, and he we... said, oh, I'm, I'm a friend of Mike's. Mike sent me the synopsis for the book you're working on. <laughs> I'm like, there is no book and I'm going to kill Mike. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's already advertising it. So, so long story short, he gathered these folks in a room, boardroom of his office. And at a whiteboard, we drew out the picture of if, and my, I was very adamant about this, Bo, mm -hmm. if there is ever to be a book, mm -hmm. what would it look like? And 18 months later, it released Rich is a State of Mind. Okay. And from there, it was lots of learning. I, I didn't know how to write a book. I'd never written a book. It was a stretch to write a short story. So you learn about writing and you learn about editing and you look about book publication and you learn that book companies aren't interested in your book on personal finance. Yeah. And so you accumulate rejection letters and you decide to self-publish the book. Um, had a great coffee meeting with David Chilton. Why? Because he wrote arguably the most successful book in Canadian publishing yeah, history. Yeah. And he said, I think you've got a good idea here. And he okay. said, here's what I would do. He said, here's what I learned about doing it. Incredibly open and giving person. Self-published the book and then found out there was only about seven people really interested in my book. <laughs> um, and so you've got to figure out how do you market the book? You well, you people. market the book by going to talk about the book. Mm -hmm. And so I approached a couple of friends of mine at Investors Group and said, I've got this book. And they said, come talk to our team. This would be cool. Okay. So I, I went and talked to the team. I have no idea how to create a presentation about a book and about this concept of personal finance because I, I'm not a financial advisor. I've never worked in that industry. I've never taken courses. Mm -hmm. I've only ever been the client. And in terms of being the client, I knew what it was like to be a client and how I felt when markets went all crazy and how I felt when had a plan and then unexpected expenses come up that throw your plan off whack. How do I talk to advisors? And so I created a presentation that I called A Peek Inside Your Client's Mind and, and open with, I've never been you. I don't want to be you. I'm never going to be you. But here's what you need to know about us that I bet you don't know. Oh, that's good. I like that. And at the end of the presentation, the regional director of this office of investors group said, that was an outstanding message. I'm encouraging all of you to pick up at least 10 of Robert's book. There's a sign-up list at the back of the room. <laughs> you sign up for the book. Tell me how many you want. Robert's going to give us the best price based on the quantity. 
And that day sold 195 copies of the book, which was more than I had sold in the previous three months. Hmm. And I went, this is kind of cool. This is the way to do this. I could do this every day. (laughs) Well, I'd like to think I could do that every day. You find out later you can't uh, for a variety of reasons. And, you know, uh, the rest is, is they say, was history. And uh, to this point, the book is now in its 17th printing. It's in its third iteration because I continue to update it. Why? Because stuff happens globally in the markets and governments change okay. and taxes change. And, yeah, you know, yeah. there was no TFSA back in 2004. Then, you know, TFSA came along. There's a U.S. edition of the book because while the story remains the same, and you can't write TFSA in a U.S. You, book. No, yeah. you know, and, and you don't write 401k or IRA in, in a, a Canadian, Canadian book. Right. Um, you know, it changes the technology, but at the heart of the book, Bo, what we've got, what I believe anyways, is a Canadian family, slightly dysfunctional, trying to figure out what do I do with all this stuff? What do I do with saving for the future? And what about compound interest? Do I really need to set goals? I know I should have some insurance. How much insurance should I have? Is it that important? What type of insurance do I need? Do I pay down the mortgage? Do I put money in an RSP? Do I pay down the mortgage? Do I put money in a TFSA? Mm. Do I do all three? Do I borrow money when I need to? Uh, how do you borrow money? How do you plan for the future? And, and oh, crap, at some point, somebody in my life is going to pass away. What do I do then? Mm-hmm. What, what is it like to be an executor? What is it like to try to, you know, manage the emotion around money? And that for me is, is one of the things I talk to audiences about all the time. Even though we're in 2018 now, money is still incredibly emotional for Canadians. Yeah. And as I said to them, I don't, I don't get it. Think about it. You know, as I say to audiences, if you're a guy, you're sitting on some, it's in your wallet, in your back pocket, you know, it used to be paper with ink. Now it's all high-tech mylar um, and plasticky. And if you believe what you read on the internet, the hundreds smell like maple syrup, right? (laughs) It's out there. It's out there. Because it's on the internet, it's true. Yes. So, you know, I've never tried it. I never have either. I'm I'm just going to assume that it's true (laughs) because it's on the internet. Um, So what is it about money? And for much of us, it boils down to what did we learn as a kid? What did we see our parents do? What did our extended family do with money? What did we learn in school? Which for the most of us, nothing. So where did we get that first grounding, which led back to your first question? Mm -hmm. What's your your first money experience? My first paycheck, holding like 70 bucks in my hand, thinking I was the richest guy in LaSalle, Ontario. That's right. And we know people with multiple commas in their net worth Hmm. who are not happy. No. In some cases, they're scared because they think it's it could all go away tomorrow. Yet we've we've met people, and I've got some good friends who fall into this category. If they've got sixty bucks in their in their pocket, man, they're the happiest people you've ever met, without a care in the world about tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And the question then becomes, which of those people is in a better place? Yeah. And to me, I I think it's obvious to the listener. It may not be obvious to them or, or they may have an entirely different opinion. And that's what makes the whole concept of money and personal finance in the work that you do so interesting. So a lot of this seems to 
be because of the plan that you put together with your financial advisor. Can we drill down on that for a little bit? We, we can. And, and unlike today, and I've still got a copy of this plan, mm-hmm. and I'll pull it out when I'm speaking at financial industry events. I've been incredibly fortunate with my career, if I want to call it that, that I've gotten to speak to big financial companies across North America. I've spoken at industry conferences and had the opportunity to walk out in front of an audience of 2,500 people from this guy who needed to go and present at an IT conference back in in 1993 and went, I can't go speak to these 25 tech geeks. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. And and now I'm walking out on stage and the music's going and, you know, please welcome Robert Geniak. And, you know, it's like looking at the audience going, this is going to be fun. That's pretty awesome. And I pull out that original plan it was four pages. So it was all possible because of this plan. And now what, what I'm wondering uh, throughout all of this yeah. is in 2001, first of all, would you reveal how old you were at that, at that time? I would have been in 2001, 40 years old. Okay, so you're 40 years old. Yeah. And sorry, I was having to do math. Yeah, in my no, head. Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm not a numbers guy. <laughs> totally fine. And so at 40, if someone was laid off from their job, um, whether they had a plan or not, it might not feel like they can sort of take a four months and then right. longer. How, so your plan was telling you that you would be okay? The plan was telling me I would be okay. And, and I'll admit, I had a, a little bit of a severance from being let go. Yeah, so you had that uh, to live From on. the company. Yeah. That, you know, for that four months, it really was like I had four months worth Fine. of income. But I knew that in month five, you better get back to work. Yeah, but, um, but you didn't. I mean, I, you didn't technically. I, I didn't technically, but I was, you know, I was doing some part-time work for some people that I knew who knew me well enough who said, yeah, we've got some things you can do to, to fill in the sure. gaps. Cause that's if, all you needed to do was fill in the gaps. If, if you're really point. pursuing this book thing. Yeah. Um, you know, I wasn't necessarily convinced about the book thing that it would turn out to be something really, really cool that now has been really the last 16 years of my life. Mm-hmm. But at the time I knew that, you know, buckle down, Cut out all the extraneous expenses. Okay. Um, I got to admit, and and this is something that I know to this day, uh, part of our great success at whatever it is we do, in in many cases, uh, belongs to the person that you're partnered with. Mm. And I had some incredible support at that time. And then that support flipped when she had the opportunity to go and work in Europe and, mm. and I went along you and said, part of then, yeah. said, you know, and it goes both ways. And then you encounter an, another life change in 2010 when she decided to pursue a, a more global opportunity. And we decided to go our, our separate ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, come back to Canada, live in a friend's basement going, uh, what just happened? <laughs> and trying okay. to figure out where life goes yeah. um, and got thrown off track. Yeah. But that's okay. Why? Because I got back on track and, you know, got back into the rhythm and the routine. I'm thrilled about the fact that, you know, we had postponed our discussion a little bit because uh, it was in Europe celebrating a fifth anniversary uh, trip for the last couple of weeks. And it was awesome. Amazing. Um, and, and to this day, sometimes I struggle with the work thing 
my mom passed away last year and I'm an only child. Hmm. So when I say it fell on me, my mom and dad didn't say, you know, we expect you to you know, walk away from your job and do this while I'm sick. They never said that. But for me, it was, when I say obligation, it, it sounds negative. It's not. It, it's what I chose to do. I wouldn't change it for a minute. And to give something back to people who gave me everything. But you built yourself a life where you have the freedom. Yeah to negotiate your own schedule. Well, and, and also to be partnered with somebody who, who said your mom and dad are way more important than three more speaking gigs. Yeah. Go hang out with them and, and I'll be there every step of the way. But because she's a school teacher, she has a much more rigid schedule than I do. So there were weeks when I was there Monday to Friday. She came down Friday night. I came home for a weekend break, went back Sunday night. She went back to work Monday. And, and I'll never be able to, to repay her for, for that. But she loved my mom and dad. And so, yeah, last year I took a huge swath of time off work. And did it affect finances? Sure it did. But it was always from Nadine, who said to me, your mom and dad are more important than this. We'll never be worried about where lunch money is coming from. Mm. Go and do this. You know, we're, we're okay. Because what does the financial impact actually mean to you in terms of like, say, you know, you lost some income. Does that mean that if you wanted to stop working in the future, you couldn't as soon um, as you want? Maybe. Or does it just mean you have less freedom to, to do less no, I work? I wouldn't say less, less freedom, Bo. There were some things that we kind of had on the horizon that sure. have been pushed out a couple of years. Okay, so things like and, that. And so, you know, the reality is, so what? It got yeah. pushed out a couple of years. I, I wouldn't trade those last six months with my of mom course. For, for anything. And really, the, the, there was that six months where it was all about mom. And then there was four to six months where it was all about dad mm. afterwards. Okay. You know, he, he didn't know. They got married very young. Of course, yeah. My mom was 19. My dad was 20. They had me 10 months after they got married. So you can kind of do the math there. At the point where I was born, mom hadn't turned 20 yet. And dad had just turned 21. Yeah, it's their whole life. And, you know, they were married 57 years. Mm. He, he didn't know life without my mom. Uh, and yeah, I don't think he would say I'm giving anything away by saying he was a little lost for a while. I'm sure it's, it's a common thing. And, and it also came at a tough time of year. Mom passed away late November. Hmm. So where are you? December, Jan, Feb. Holidays. There's, there's winter. holidays, but it's winter yeah. and, and dad's an outdoor guy, oh, no. right? Yeah. Gardening, cutting lawns, fishing, hanging okay. out with his buddies at, at, you know, they, they all kind of fish together and their boats all at the marina together. So he's inside and everybody, all his buddies hibernate for the winter. Sure. So, and that made it tougher. And, and sure enough, when, when March and April came along and spring rolled along, he got his rhythm back and he's doing great. And I'll see him later on tonight, uh, pretty much, you know, five hours after we're done here. And, and he's, he's doing great. And there, there are times, and I, I share this story with audiences, you know, he, he put his arm around me and said, you know, I couldn't, we couldn't have done this without you. Mm-hmm. I'm not a super emotional guy, but the day he said that, it was like, uh, yeah, I got to, I got to go hard, hard not <laughs> to know? have emotion. On this, you know? uh, then, and, yeah. uh, because of that, it, it made all of, all of that worthwhile. But what it was, Bo is also, it's a learning experience massively. 
I had no idea what it was like to be an executor. Mm. I had no idea what it was like to work with a funeral home and, and all the stuff that has to be done, canceling passports, canceling SIN numbers, canceling CPP payments, mm. and, and dealing with a funeral home and dealing with a cemetery and dealing with insurance companies and all of the things that come with that transaction of somebody passing away. And, and to be honest, I have started working on book number two. I should have started working on book number two 10 years ago, but don't get <laughs> me started on that. Much of, of this new piece, I think, is going to center about life 2.0. Yeah. What, what happens afterwards? Because I, I've learned so much about it. And, and even through mom's illness, you know, navigating the Canadian healthcare system and personal support workers and and what insurance companies will pay for and not pay for and how do you how do you acquire a hospital bed for a house and you know yeah. where do you go to and what about nursing homes and what about palliative care there is so many opportunities to do things and learn things and i think people get overwhelmed with it all sometimes because there's no central repository of information there's no go to this website and start working through. Here's plan A, here's plan B, here's plan C, here's plan D. I guess it's, I would just Google it. And, yeah. and you can. And, and you and may I or may not too. find, yeah. yeah. And, and here, here's what I found through the process. There's a wealth of information out there. But nobody's information ties to anybody else's information. Okay, yeah. And so what, what they've given you is about 100 pieces of fabric and now you need somebody who can turn it into a quilt. You got to weave it together. Exactly. That that sounds like a very useful book for people who, because I'm sure it falls just on a lot of kids, you know, being the executor, taking care of their elderly and, parents. And it does. And, and what I found out through that process, and, and maybe you've experienced this yourself, is people need an advocate. Hmm. And I was able to be mom's advocate and able to be dad's advocate. Good. But there are... Lots of families and lots of older people whose kids might live in BC or California or you know somewhere else around the globe where they're trying to advocate for themselves. Mm. And that can be a very difficult and daunting task. The more you know, the better questions you ask. The better questions you ask, the better decisions you get to make. And when you're advocating for a parent or a loved one or, or a spouse or, or a sick child... And we hear this all the time about, about a parent who was adamant that their child was truly sick and, you know, the medical profession somehow missed it because of something. But the parent said, no, 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 it's this, it's this. And then they find out it's that. But had the parent not advocated and yeah. said, you know, I'm not going until I get an answer, then stuff doesn't happen. And that's what I learned about that process, you know, through mom's illness and through trying to be dad's advocate after. And what I'm thinking about is something you mentioned earlier about either the the person who maybe isn't making enough so they can't take time off work, or they feel like they can't, yeah. or the person who's making a million dollars and feels the same way yeah. for some reason, they have this thought in their head that I can't take the time off to go and help or be with mom or, yeah. or help dad because I'm not going to recover from this. Yeah. And and how what would you just to, to just to finish uh, finish up on a, a note about that and, and maybe talking about the the, the thought book. process for me, Bo, yeah. is is that it's absolutely worth it. 
Mm. It's, it's not about the money. What you may lose in income through the process will, will never make you any happier because you've had it, because you've lost time. Yeah. You see the platitudes there, you know, time is money. No, time isn't money. Time with somebody is time you're never going to get back, especially when you know that th- this wasn't having the flu. This wasn't a broken leg. Yeah. Uh, we knew where this was going. It was only a matter of time before it happened. And, and mom was on a cancer drug called Affinitor. Okay. $7,000 a month oh, wow. for this drug for 30 days. And the Ontario Drug Benefit played for a chunk of it. Okay. And dad's coverage through his retirement benefits all right. paid for most of the rest of it. But I share with people all the time, if you didn't have that coverage yeah, you and, you had, and you had to come up with $4,000 a month or five or even 2,500, what would you do? Yeah. Would you, would you remortgage the house? Would you raid the kids RESP? Would you drain your RRSP? Hmm. Not because it fixed the problem, but because you were buying time for somebody you loved. Mm. And, and we were very fortunate in, in that aspect to have that kind of coverage. But if it hadn't have been there, would, would I have spent my own money to do that? It, it wouldn't have even been a question. Mm. In, in a heartbeat, that would have happened. Take the time, build the relationship, and, and spend the time with those that you love because the money is really secondary at the end of the day. Now, there are plans and opportunities through both provincial and federal governments for you to be able to take money out of an RSP or Mm -hmm. TFSA because of a a family hardship emergency case where you're the caregiver, there's tax benefits, there's lots of things you could apply for. But again, all this information is scattered all over the place. And you've got to know to go and look for that up front. And, And even a simple thing, when uh, when it was very close to mom's time and my wife who's a school teacher uh, went to her union rep and said, I, I need to take some time off mm-hmm. to go and do this. And the union was, they were like, yeah, absolutely. This, this is not an issue. You know, she's been teaching 35 years, highly regarded in her school. Oh, wow. And I mentioned this to uh, the doctor who was caring for mom is, is the home palliative doctor that she was going to take an unpaid leave. And she went, why would she do that? Hmm. And I, I well, what do you mean? She said, all I've got to do is sign a form T2832, whatever. Okay. And her, her leave will be covered. She's, she's teacher in Ontario, right? Interesting. She, it will be covered under her benefit plan for up to six weeks. Hmm. And it was like, and I never made that comment or made the link. Yeah. And, and it's not that the union rep didn't know was hiding it. You know, it's how many things do we not know? It's how many things do we not know? And, and one of the things I I like to encourage people to do through my presentations and through the book, ask questions, ask questions, ask questions. The more questions you ask, the more information you get, the better information you get, the better decisions you get to make. And that's really in a nutshell for me, what it's all about is it relates to what I went through with mom and dad is what people go through in the personal finance realm as they're trying to plan for their family and their future. Don't stop asking questions. And we'll keep trying to be advocates. Exactly. Right? As much as possible. And, and never be afraid to ask the question. That's right. Because you never know who that person is who knows the answer, but you might have never thought the answer belonged to that person. Mm-hmm. 
You, you ask the question of somebody else who's been through this with your parents. Here's what I learned when I was doing this for my aunt or my grandparent. It's like, did you know that this was available? I had no idea that was available. Where do I find out more information about that? And it, it's continually ask, continually ask, and, and be advocates, not only for your parents, but we have to do it for ourselves as well, right? When it becomes to our personal finances and creating a better, more successful financial future, it won't just happen if we're not engaged with the process. And on that note, how do people find out more about you? Find out more about me? Well, if they, can, they want. If they want to, they can go to robertgeniac.com, which is kind of the me about me as a, as a speaker sure. uh, and, and the Money and Motivation and More podcast and the We Talk Money TV show. About the book itself, mm-hmm. it's richisastateofmind.com. So it's the book's title just spelled out, richisastateofmind.com. Okay. They can read sample chapters. They can read reviews. They can read articles I write for industry magazines. I'm sure I'm going to be posting our chat up there under the media side later on if you're if you're willing to let me Perfect. do so. Sounds good. Uh, about conversations I like to have with people about money because I'm, I'm kind of passionate about it. And at the end of the day, I want Canadians to have a more successful financial future, whatever that is for them, because it is a personal thing for money. Some want multiple commas in the net worth. Some want to sit by a lake in a tent and, and enjoy sunsets. Exactly. And, and have the both, $60 in their pocket. Both of those are very cool things. And if it makes you happy at the end of the day, I'd like to help make that happen for them. Amazing. Well, thanks for coming uh, to my studio in, in Hamilton. I know you're not very far from here, but uh, appreciate Both, it, you making the trip. It, it's, it's been an honor to be able to share this time with you and share some ideas and uh, keep doing what you're doing because I think it really, really does help people create a better future. And same to you. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or however you get your podcasts. If you're already a subscriber, thank you so much. I'd love to get your feedback on this episode in my new Facebook group. To find the group, go to Facebook and search for The Personal Finance Show. Once you're approved, you'll be able to interact with me and previous guests of the show and other fans as well. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Personal Finance Show. Next week, my guest will be financial empowerment coach, Danielle Alexandria.